The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. We don't want to have our capital supporting thermal coal, but it is about transition and making sure that you know people have the opportunity to be part of the transition you know, and that we're thoughtful about that. Hello, my name's Nathan Parkin. I'm the Investment Director and Co-Founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. This is the 10th episode of the Good Investing Podcast. And just a refresher on what this podcast is all about, on it we speak to business leaders, entrepreneurs, and those in society who invest in financial or other markets, but at the same time do it in the right way. This can be from a not-for-profit perspective or investing sustainably or with a particular focus on good governance. In our latest episode, we featured ex-Macquarie Group CEO, Nicholas Moore. Today, we speak with ANZ CEO Shane Elliott. There are perhaps no businesses in Australia that have more influence on Australian families than the big four banks. And as such, they have a significant opportunity to have a positive influence in so many different ways. Today, we will talk about some of these areas, and we have a lot of ground to cover. Shane Elliott has been Chief Executive Officer of ANZ for over six years and has held roles running the institutional business and as CFO of the bank. Shane has more than 30 years' experience in international banking, including in Australia, New Zealand, the USA, UK, Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. Prior to ANZ, Shane held senior executive roles at EFG Hermes and was with Citigroup for 20 years. Shane is also a director of the Financial Markets Foundation for Children and is a member of the Customs Advisory Board and studied in New Zealand. Welcome, Shane, and thanks for being our 10th guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Shane, I'd like to start at the beginning. You grew up in humble beginnings in West Auckland in New Zealand. And as I understand it, you spent part of your upbringing living in the garage as your father built the home. But perhaps quite ironically, your father was building the house on weekends specifically to avoid borrowing from a bank. He didn't believe in debt, did he? No, my, no, he didn't. And my father's passed away now, but I grew up in that time. Um, my, my grandparents lost their house in the Depression. And my father was a very young child at that time. And like all of those things, it was very formative and it really sort of stuck with him. So he was terrified of having any sort of debt. In fact, I don't think my parents really borrowed money until dad was probably, mum um, and dad were well into their late 50s and, uh, you know, already had the house and other things. So, yes, he was, he was nervous about debt because he'd seen the downside when people can get themselves into harm's way. Absolutely. And how do you think your upbringing that shaped your values uh, today? Well, it shaped them a lot. I mean, you know, as I said, I, you know, I grew up in sort of a working class dad as a builder. My mother uh, was a secretary in offices and bits and pieces. My sister and I grew up, you know, we were well cared for and we, you know, I didn't certainly feel that we were deprived, uh, far from it. Uh, benefited from a very good time. Uh, this was in the 60s and 70s in New Zealand when public education was well funded and, and good and I had the benefit of going to university um, my parent which my parents very much encouraged um, for essentially for free and uh, so I had the the benefits of those things and that really you know you know I'm extremely grateful for all of those opportunities um, but like everything your childhood does uh, shape you you're not always aware of it at the time um, but those values around you know, debt and conservatism and value and all of those things have certainly stayed with me and, and hopefully, you know, my children 
to some extent, although they have a very different life experience, um, have, have shared some of those values as well. Did you have um, aspirations work in the finance sector as you were kind of coming through your studies? No, not at all. It never occurred to me to be perfectly honest. I mean, I sort of, you know, grew up um, going to school. Um, I liked maths and I liked economics and those sorts of things. Um, but like, I guess a lot of teenagers didn't really know what I was going to do. It was a, it was a school teacher, one of my English teacher who was very influential and she was the one who suggested to me that I should study business. But no, I, I didn't. I, look, I'd always been interested in things like the share market. You know, I thought that was just an interesting thing. Um, but no, it was a largely not an accident, accidental, but it wasn't a great, you know, lifelong passion. But I found the business degree. And again, even when I did commerce, I, it wasn't necessarily with the idea of working in finance. I just liked the idea of, you know, business and it, things happened. I literally fell into a role as a trainee at um, at Citibank and, and that sort of shaped, I guess, my, my career for, from then on. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I read that you um that that Citigroup business took you to Egypt when you were thirty three to to run the business there. That must have been quite an adventure. Yeah, it was an adventure. I, you know, the Citigroup of that day, and I'm eternally grateful for my time at City. It was a great place to work. Again, like your childhood, you know, you learn your values of work from your early, I think, from your early experiences and how companies treat you and their and their attitude to people and the way they. Um, value, learning, and other and opportunity. And City had a great culture, which was very much, hey, we hire smart people and we give them opportunity. And if you do well, we'll give you more opportunity. And, you know, I was a beneficiary of that. And so I was working in Auckland. I got the opportunity to go to London. I thought I was going to go for a year. I ended up staying five years. You know, we might go through all the uh, ins and outs. But, yes, I, I ended up with that opportunity uh, to go to Egypt, which um, – I, at the time, I thought it was way out of my debt. But again, the bank was always very good at look. You know, there's lots of cotton wool around. There's lots of people to help. You know, we 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 back people and we give you the support. And um, you know, it, it was it was it was a great opportunity. And certainly being a country head at that time, and it's a little bit like that at ANZ today, actually, because we've got 33 countries. There's this sort of value of being a country is one of the best roles you can ever have in a bank because you are, it's the breadth, right? You're one minute you're dealing with regulators, you're dealing with customers and staff and all sorts of weird and wonderful things happen and you sort of have to stay on your toes. And, and it's a great, it's great fun and a great experience. Oh, that's that's great. And 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 when you actually came into the ANZ leadership role that you're in now, it was um it was a time where the direction of the business needed to be changed, and you recognised that. And, and just interested in how difficult that was to change such a large organisation and bring the whole team and the shareholders along with you in that in that journey. Well, it's extra. I mean, I don't want to whine about it. It's hard, right? And you know, we're talking about at the time a company that had you know fifty odd thousand people in thirty three countries, you know, half a million shareholders, you know, you know, all the eight million customers, all of the stats. These are big super tanker businesses, right? And um, so change is hard on any level, whatever you're trying to achieve. And in particular the new CEO and you're trying to, you know, create some clarity. And you know, ANZ has got some other challenges. We're a little bit different to some of our peer group and that to some extent, we're a little, and you know, less so than before. We're we're a conglomerate. You know, we've got a big business in New Zealand, we've got a big business in Australia, we've got our international business, and and sometimes creating clarity and simplicity of message is a bit harder for that. So um, yes, it's difficult, but it has to be done. And um, you know, you need to get your narrative right. 
what do you stand for? And that's really where purpose came in for ANZ, you know, really, really, and I think in hindsight, probably far more important than I had imagined was that foundation of, you know, why do people come to work every day at ANZ? What, what's the purpose of ANZ? Why, do, what, why does anybody care? And so they're having that really strong belief in hindsight unlocked a lot of value for the company because our people really um, could relate to that and understand why we were here and therefore made rational sense of this is why we're doing X, Y, and Z because it's really based on a sense of purpose. And that gave people, I think, the clarity um, and, and the willingness also and the, and the courage to make sacrifice because, you know, whenever you're making change, sadly, you, you know, you are asking people to make sacrifices. You know, we're not going to do this. We're going to do something different. We're not going to have, you know, jobs over here or we're not going to be executing that product or be in that place anymore. Those are hard. And you're asking those people to essentially make a sacrifice for the greater good. And people are up for sacrifice, but they understand why. And, and I think, you know, on one hand, we might say, oh, it's because, you know, the earnings per share or the ROE or any of that, that's not terribly exciting. But when you talk about purpose, and the impact that you're having on the greater community, that can be very, very, very um, motivating for people, and people are willing to come with you on that. Yeah, that, that that's fascinating. I mean, one of the great things about funds management running a portfolio is that when you sense you need to make a change, you can do that very quickly, and hearing how you do that with a large organisation is is fascinating. Um, just changing gears a little bit, when crisis hits, um, so – Maybe in the early days of COVID, you got mortgage deferrals, you've got business uncertainty, the stock market's crashing. What are your first thoughts you have when you're running an organisation like a bank? A great question, right? So first thing I think is um, banks are, are in an ongoing state of crisis, particularly if you're an international bank. There's always something going on, right? And, you know, my time at City, I was very, I was lucky I'd, I'd had sort of that experience, whether it's directly or not. You know, there's always there was a Latin American debt crisis, Russian debt crisis, <laughs> you know, Asian financial crisis, tech threats, you know, you name them. They and they come about with a remarkable uh, regularity. They're quite common, I think. So you sort of get used, and you, there's a little bit of a not a manual, but there's sort of a sense of priority what what to do. The difference with this one, Nathan, I think in the COVID, where it's really different from my perspective. And all those other things that I talked about, normally the banks are right at the heart of the crisis, right? You are, you are at the epicenter. And so actually in those, your first reaction is survival, right? It is literally how are we going to survive? And, you know, I remember I joined ANZ in the middle of the sort of GFC and, I'm, you know, we'd have daily phone calls on about liquidity and balance sheet and all that other stuff because you're really worried about your own ability to continue to operate because we're enormously leveraged, as you know. And so that tends to be your first thing. Hey, we've got to protect ourselves and look after, make sure that we can continue. And then only after you've done that can you turn your mind to all those other things like customers and people in the community. Actually, what happened in COVID was really, really different and turned all that on its head. So when it first started, and it's only two years ago, our first reaction is, wow, we have to do this protect thing. You know, we have to get on top of our liquidity, manage it. Actually, because of government um, general support of the economy and a whole bunch of other things, that wasn't actually the issue. And in fact, banks were not at the heart of this. In fact, our deposit levels went up, our bad debts went down. We, we, we were actually in kind of rude health, if you will, from a, from a general balance sheet perspective. So really quickly, we were able to pivot to the next phase, which is adapting to the new world. And um, so we put together, I can't remember when it was now, but really early on, I put together this sort of four point plan. You know, people like Clarity, so we had protect, we did need to protect our people, 
protect our customers, protect the bank, adapt, figure out how to operate in this new world, working from home being the obvious uh, ones, but also all the other things that came with COVID, like deferrals and all that other stuff. Engage. We said, hey, what happens in a crisis is people, whether they're our people or they're our customers or the community, they seek clarity. They're overwhelmed. There's, you're being, you know, it's just overwhelming. What they want is clarity. So we increased our engagement, spoke more to customers, spoke more to regulators, spoke more to our people. And then the last piece of it was to prepare for, the, it's really about preparing for the future. And we knew that one of the constants in crises is the world looks really different after crises than, than going in. And, and you want to be on the right side of that. So how do you get through all that work I just talked about and as quickly as you can get into preparing for the new future? Um, so that's what we did. And um, I think that clarity sort of helped. But right along that was that, again, so easy to get distracted in a crisis. There's always something you could spend all your day doing. But uh, what we tried to do, not always, was keep going back to that sense of purpose and ground and say, why are we here? What do we really care about, um, et cetera? So, because you know, you need to make hard priority decisions. Yeah, that, that's um, very, very interesting to hear that clarity of purpose and that plan that you put together very quickly. And I, and that's why the banks got through that the way they did. I'm, I'm guessing, and and why the health of the organisation that you're running is looks like what it does today. Yeah, the other thing, though, that we knew, it's, it's good. We have um, the benefit at ANZ, and certainly when I was at City, and I know the other banks do as well, we've got people who've been around, right, and, and have been through those crises and remember what happens. And one of the things we did early on, you just remember, we sort of, we had a bit of a, not a war room, but we got a lot of those people in a room and said, just, let's just have a discussion. <laughs> what, what's going to happen? Right. And because people go, well, I remember 92 and this happened and that happened and all the things we've done wrong in the past. How do we avoid those? But one of the things that came through really clearly early on was um, we know that customers will never forget. And I mean, that they will never forget how you treated them in a time of crisis. Yeah. If you run away from them, they never forgive you. And if you stick with them, they will always be loyal. Right? And we all reflected on the number of times that customers, big, small, whatever, have said to us over the years, in good times, hey, I'll never forget that in blah, blah, blah time, you know, ANZ stood with us when we were in strife or this happened or that happened and we, you know, we never forget that. And so we sort of saw that as an opportunity to say if we, if we have the courage and, and, and the wherewithal, you still need the capital and all those other things, the best thing we can do here is really stick by the customers we sort of know and love and the people that we trust and we will get rewarded for for, for forever um, for that. Absolutely. And uh, that's touching on some of the topics um really like to talk about and in the ESG sense. And um, I think one is, you know, the just transition from where we are today to, um, you know, to where things are going. I guess in terms of an opportunity around ESG, um, what's your personal view around that? Is, you know, is it a real opportunity? Some, not us, would say that the whole movement is kind of woke. Um, but what's your view on 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 some of these developments and and are they actually an opportunity for for growth? Absolutely. Look, you know, we what do banks do if you sort of go back to its you know sort of really fundamental purpose of of us? We allocate capital, so we're a little bit like fund manager. In there. We allocate capital. We have enormous responsibility, right? You know, and it's 60 billion of capital, a trillion dollar balance sheet, whatever big numbers. Our job is to allocate that capital to effect change. 
And so we actually uh, can, through our actions, who we bank, what projects, what people, what customers, where we put money, have a massive influence. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but we do the way we operate on the on the whole community. And so we have to take that with a great degree of sort of responsibility to think think about that. So that's what banks do. We 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 allocate capital to implement uh, change. So when we stand back and think about where the super trends are, the big cycles, the tra- the trends that are happening, that just transition is not only the right thing to do in terms of you know the the sort of broader purpose of the for the community it's also just a good old-fashioned massive business opportunity it is a trend the capital is going to get allocated there and you want to be, you know from a business perspective you want to be there um, and lead it and and influence it so we see it as both a the right thing to do and b um, we see it as this big opportunity our responsibilities or and our impacts are a little bit different to other banks because we've got this big institutional bank. We, we we're the we're the bank to the big end of town. You know, like every bank's got its strengths. That's ours, and so our our real influence can be through others. You know, like by banking the right you know energy companies who are transitioning, the right resources companies who are transitioning, the right you know construction companies or transport companies that are part of that transition. So we that's how we have. Uh, our influence, but we see it as I said, it's it's not a charity. We see it as a good business, and, and totally aligned with the the sort of broader, better uh, benefits for the community. And as that transition happens, naturally there will be areas like maybe um, thermal coal and others that you're moving away from as that happens. How does how do you and how does the bank think about supporting those customers, communities? Where you will wind down, and you know, we believe that's a good commercial decision to do so. Um, but how would, how do you think about supporting those areas and, so, and businesses as they make that change? Or they have to make that change the way the world is is going. This is the hard bit, you know. This is the this is really, you know, we get criticised, and I understand why from all sorts of quarters. You know, at one level, the easy thing for us to do would be sort of cut and run. I mean, you know, you know, let's just, you know, let's just use that as an example, thermal coal, it'd be easy, you know, the exposures that we have there in the scheme of things are not large. Um, we could just like get out and say and, and move on and there'd be lots that would applaud that. But when you stand back and think about your broader purpose to shape a world where people and communities thrive, I'm not sure that's really achieving that purpose for that community you've abandoned. And so the question is, how do you play a role in the transition? So yes, we need to move our capital. Yes, we don't want to. We don't want to have our capital supporting thermal coal, but it is about transition and making sure that you know people have the opportunity. Companies, the people who work there, the local communities have the opportunity to to be part of the transition. Yeah, you know, and that we're thoughtful about that. Now others will say, "Oh, you're dragging your heels. You're using this as an excuse. You're not going fast enough." Well, that's that's the that's the delicate delicate balance we need to get right. That we are making the changes, but we're doing it in a just way ourselves. And so we, through our ethics and responsible business committee that I chair in the bank, that's the sort of thing we think about, the speed of the transition. So what we do, and again, this sounds overly simplistic, but we we have to back customers who are ultimately get it. So we don't just sit there with a big, you know, red marker and say, oh, you're in the call, you're out, or you're, you know, we sit and go, okay. Is this a company that understands the need for change and, and we're going to support them changing? Or is this a company who doesn't? And so ultimately we back those who get it 
who understand the transition, who are willing to be part of that transition, and we will back those people. And I think probably the more the probably the more apt example at the moment is really is is in oil and gas, right? Because to some extent, thermal coal is a little bit more black and white in many ways, but oil and gas is a lot more nuanced. Um, again, the easy thing for us to do would just be not do it, just abandon the industry and say, oh, we don't do oil and gas. I'm not sure that is actually achieving the right outcome for the broader community. Um, and so it's about us getting that balance right. And I think setting targets out, you know, eight to 10 years on some of these areas is really useful in that sense because people know and they have, you know, then companies know and and borrowers know that you know there's there's some limit to to that change, and at some point you know you'll be out of certain areas, and we think that yeah that's a really important part of of communicating the intentions as well. Yeah, I think indicating your thinking, and again, it's an interesting one because again you get criticised. It's it, these are not black and white rules we can write. You know, we 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 sat down very early on and said when it comes to the just the broader area of climate but generally in terms of any sort of ethical decision making it's not a matter of rules we'll do this we won't do that you know that would be nice it'd be a hell of a lot easier to be perfectly honest <laughs> but it's not there is always nuance and and thing and the, the world is changing every day as well and so you need to be able to flex but i think to your point what we need to do is is signal direction this is where we're going by in reasonable time frames and these are the sorts of things we're going to have to do along that time frame. Um, and then, you know, we should be held to account um, by our shareholders and by the broader market to say, are you actually doing what you said you would do? Absolutely. And on the other side, on the opportunity side and the growth side, um, the sustainability lending and the sustainability bonds that are now coming to the market in, you know, large volumes. Are they the traditional type of lending that's being kind of renamed or rebadged, or or is it actually genuine and, and net growth for the banking sector? And, and is that a significant opportunity? Do you think for you? Well, I think there's a little bit of both, and I think everybody is right to be cautious about the sort of greenwashing that is potentially um, either with us or certainly potentially. I think there's an element of that, um, and I think we do need to be a bit cynical. And certainly at ANZ, we really look hard to make sure this, the, you know, when we talk about things being sustainable finance, they really are. So I, I, I think that's true. But to your broader question, um, no, we, I think there is a net growth opportunity because what you're seeing is, and again, through a cycle, we're going to see this massive need for investment for that transition, yeah? And, you know, it's easy to talk about, well, you know, energy and bits and pieces and hydrogen and gas and all that other stuff, yes, and solar and blah, blah, blah. But right across the economy, you know, the big one of the big ones is in transport. One of the other big, you know, the electrification of the sort of, you know, transport fleet around the world. Another huge one is in agriculture. So there's, there's in food and beverage. So there's lots and lots of investment required. And I think we are in a bit of a super cycle where it's going to be extremely high. And it's, it's not, so it's not just, you know, a level of investment is the same, it's just, changing its shape, I think there is going to have to be accelerated investment and therefore there's a growth opportunity for those that are well positioned for it. And just in, in terms of how you reward executives for finding and executing some of these opportunities, um, do you think that that you'll you'll see in future in the in the sector that some of these ESG factors will feature more in remuneration of executives across the sector? Good question. I mean, you know, I guess we like many companies 
uh, operate on this, a balanced scorecard approach. I mean, gosh, I can't. I think first time I'd seen balanced scorecards was when I was at City, probably in the nineties, when it was sort of became the thing to do. Um, and they're still with us. Clearly, the balance within there has shifted. Yeah, and um, actually, as a bank, we are much of that balance is not only um, you know from from our thinking, it's coming from our regulator. Actually, APRA in many ways is dictating. Or, or, or certainly prescribing um, some of the weightings they want to see in there. So, you know, less about financial weighting, more about operational. And, of course, we're seeing an increase in the ESG. So ESG has always been in there, if I think about things like, you know, diversity statistics or things like the Dow Jones sustainability. And some of those things have been in there for quite a while, but they're clearly growing uh, they're growing in in weight, and so that determines overall performance for the organisation, but also for um, for for executives. Yes, there's a growth in that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, now, just I'm just stepping back, looking at the sector uh, or the large four banks um, as a sector, and I'm guessing you're going to say no to this, but is it hard to differentiate ANZ from the other banks? Well, no, I'm not going to say no. It is actually. It's funny <laughs> you say that because we were talking about this um, the last couple of days with my team. It is a bit of a yes and no. First of all, we, you know, I, when we come to work, I, we don't get paid by our shareholders to be different for the sake of being different. It's easy to be different. <laughs> you can be different and bad, right? So we, we, we're paid or we're incented to win, to do well, right? And so it's probably inevitable that the banks, to some degree, share a lot of similarities in terms of where we focus, how we operate, what we think is important. So I don't, I don't know that that's unusual. Um, and you see that in lots of industries, there's a sort of a um, coalescing around what's the right thing to do. I think though the difference comes, Nathan, in that the hands, because we are these big super tanker businesses and we're not a fund that we can just you know, sell a stock tomorrow morning, we, we typically come with different starting points. And so ANZ is just different because of its DNA its history, and it's the portfolio that we have been dealt. And actually, what's interesting, our ability to change the shape of the portfolio is, is reasonably constrained. I mean, I think we've done a really good job changing the shape of the portfolio we've got in six years. But, you know, compared to other industries, it might look quite slow. But that is our job. I mean, we, you know, maybe a little off topic, but we see our job as, in many ways, my job is like a fund manager. You know, I, I have these businesses in my portfolio, you know, and our job is to what's the right, what's the right businesses to have in the portfolio? And we've sold 25 businesses we don't want in the portfolio anymore. And what are the ones we want to buy into the portfolio? And then what's the right weighting of that portfolio to achieve our purpose and, and to fulfill our promise to um, shareholders. So there's a little bit of difference in there, but um, it's hard to, for sometimes for certain parts of the market to see. Yeah, sure. Now, look, it wouldn't be a discussion with you without asking about your view on house prices over the next year. Yeah. Oh, I give up. I mean, I, um, you know, to some extent they defy logic, right? But, you know, in terms of the um, the sort of continuing uh, growth in house prices, um, but, you know, on the other hand, households in Australia and New Zealand, for that matter, the household balance sheets are in rude health, right? So you look and say, basically, people are, you know, in, in, in some shape, they're the strongest they've been in 20 years. You know, the value of their house is high. 
the level of debt is higher, but in a relative basis, reasonably, you know, affordable because of low interest rates. And so the amount of debt servicing cost is actually reasonably low. And of course, particularly in Australia, but also in New Zealand, the superannuation, the pension balance that people, households have is also very high. So the balance sheets are actually pretty good. You sit back and think about the underlying uh, drivers, household formation, all those other bits and pieces. Um, we think there's still some room for house prices to inflate a little bit, but certainly not at the levels they did last year. So I think our, I think our guys have a sort of a mid-single like mid digit kind of house price uh, prediction for next year. But look, what have we learned over the last year that predictions, uh, what's that Yogi Berline predictions are really difficult, particularly about the future. Um, you know, last, it was only two years ago when COVID hit, we, every, everybody, I think, predicted that house prices would fall by, you know, 15%. And we were completely wrong. So I think, you know, watch this period of time. Thank you. Um, now, just turning to some questions um, we ask all the guests on this podcast, um, just on leadership in investing and other things. Um, just turning to what, what do you think the most important aspect of good leadership that is often overlooked? What's your view? <coughs> Well, I've got two points of view on that. So one, I think leadership is situational. So it depends what you're what you're leading and what the environment is. You know, I and I think really good leaders understand that and are able to flex. You know, so in, going back to where we started in a time of crisis, actually directive leadership really works well because your teams are overwhelmed and they just really like tell me what to do. Yeah. So I think you need. I think people who you know really good leaders are able to either in, intuitively or not be able to understand it situational, what's required for now. I think one of the ones that's really changed, or not, maybe not changed, but has become more to the fore, is particularly in a world of social media, flatter organisations, more transparency is, um, you know, the value of authenticity. You know, it's not that long ago, um, you know, most people in the company would never have seen the CEO or know, perhaps even know what they look like, right? Um, and, not, and certainly not interact with them. But in today's world, with, you know, the tools and things we have and the way things work, not only do people know who you are and see you, they expect to be able to interact with you and hear you and talk to you and send you things. And so that really puts a high, um, I think, value on being authentic. And being and being more honest and, and and sort of transparent than perhaps was hard. Yeah, thanks, Shane. And do you mind mentioning when you might have failed at something, what you learned, and how that might have set you up for success later on? Where would I start? I mean, look, every every single role I've had, you know, you make mistakes. Whether I was in the dealing room making mistakes on things, or as a country head in Egypt, or when I was a country head in Australia, you know, but. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you, that is, we're all humans and so we, we have to do the best with what we're given. I think the learnings from nearly all of those, we make sure you surround yourself with smart people that you can trust, that will tell you, um, give you the right feedback, will tell you that what you're doing is wrong or that, that, you're, that you know, you've made a mistake or that something needs to change or, or whatever. So I think. That has been the sort of, you know, it sounds very simplistic, but I think that idea of just, hey, you surround yourself with really good people and create a culture of transparency and honesty where people are willing to tell you, hey, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, that, for me, has been the sort of overriding lesson throughout all of those mistakes. Absolutely. It's hard, you know, when you're a CEO, you know, you uh, going back to that point, are you try, I think, you, well, I try, you try really hard to be available and, authentic in those but you know to some extent you 
you are living in a bubble. You, you, you can't help it. I mean, you, you, you hang out with, you know, big important people and boards and big customers and politicians or whatever. And so trying to keep grounded and, and, and so that can start to influence the way you think about things and what you think uh, the community thinks. And so I think broadening your engagement and we try hard, we have these civil society connections, you know, we used to do them over lunches and now we do them over Zoom and whatever. We're trying to, and it's really important for me to go, you know, with consumer action groups and charities and unions and local mayors and all the union leaders, whatever, to try to cut through out of that bubble to make sure you get some sense of sort of reality and what's happening on the ground and how people are thinking. Absolutely. Um, and what about one of the best um, investment or capital decisions you've you've made and how did that work out? <laughs> Well, well, I'll talk about it. So at ANZ, I think, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad that all, you know, the 25 businesses that we've sold, like literally all of them, I'm glad we did it. It was hard. It's hard selling stuff, right? It's hard because, you know, those are things that were part of the family and, and people loved them and, and felt it's hard. But I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we made the decision to be simpler and, and have less things to do. I think those... It's easy to underestimate because they're sort of forgotten when you've sold them. But actually, um, I think, you know, lightening the load and being simpler, that to me is probably, that certainly over the last six years, Ryan did, I think it's probably created more value than anything else that we've done, to be honest. I think we, we've been unfortunately in a phase of more like cleaning up and, and simplifying. We haven't really yet got to that phase where we, we hope we're there more now to be a bit more on the front foot, to your point about being more overt. But where we are allocating capital in, an, in a very organic way is, is really about sustainability, actually. Now, we're at the early days of that. So that, but, you know, we're very optimistic. And I think that'll shape ANZ for the future. My, so just two seconds on this. Like, ANZ today is a creature of, and of decisions that in many cases were made over 100 years ago. You know, Melbourne-based, big mining bank, you know, gold rush, all that sort of stuff, that shaped ANZ for 150 years, you know. That's why we had the big trade network and all those other bits and pieces, yeah, our agri and, and mining thing. What we're trying to do today is make decisions that will shape ANZ for the next 100 years, which we, you know, we think is around two areas. On the consumer side, it's about financial well-being, and on the institutional, is really about sustainability. And so how do we become the go-to sustainability bank? Because we know more about it. We understand the risk better. We know how to price it, et cetera. Um, not just for the next five-year fad, but actually for the next 50 years and beyond. And that's, to me, really exciting. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, now, just winding down a bit more generally, what are you reading at the moment? I'm actually reading something that I normally never read. So um, I, I read a lot of fiction. My grandfather and my mother... My mother's father both read, you know, sort of uh, got me into crime thrillers and all that. So I read, I read loads and loads of those. That's my sort of go-to place. I don't read a lot of business books, to be perfectly honest, but I'm reading one at the moment called Lights Out, and it's the story of GE, and it's the story of the – it's really sort of starts at the end of the Jack Welsh period and goes through the IML period. and that, It's actually a really good book, and uh, it's interesting because it reminds me a lot of my time at City. And, some, and many of the challenges we have at ANZ, you can sort of see through in there. So that's actually been really good and something that, I, as I said, I don't normally do. And then the other book I'm reading again, which I don't normally read, is a book called The Startup Way, which is really about trying to learn some of the operating ways that 
startups, you know, you know, agile ways of working, decision making, all those bits and pieces. So those are the two things, which is pretty unusual for me to have those on my bedside. Yeah, fantastic. And and what advice would you give to your twenty one year old self? Oh, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know that I would. Oh, you know, life's an adventure, right? And you have to just go for it, and you have to have a sense of courage. You know, I never imagined in my wildest dreams I'd be doing something like this or even having worked in those places when I was 21. But, you know, I think it's about sort of backing yourself and 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 doing things that you get some, you know, you get pleasure out of and, and, and enjoyment. So, you know, and I think, you know, it's, it's sad at the moment with COVID actually, this idea of not being able to travel and do those things because I think that's been a great sustaining thing for me. I mean, one of the things that I miss at the moment with ANZ, you know, we are in those 30 countries. It's exciting to go and see our people in Shanghai or Taipei or in uh, Bengaluru and hear them and, and see the impact that you have on their lives and their careers and, and their, allowing them to fulfil their dreams. And that's been a bit of a loss, actually. I mean, it's not quite the same doing it on Teams or Zoom. Yeah, no, we, we sympathise with that. I mean, one of the things we love about um, our role is that we get to go to many you know different businesses and their offices and and, and see people where, where they work and um yeah that's something that we really miss as well um just um if you could name one person who's inspired you uh, you know in a in a good way in terms of your career who would that be i've actually got a few i won't know I, look basically you know there's that old line that people um you know join companies and leave bosses and um I've just been blessed with, you know, I'd say 90% of the people I worked for over my time have just been great people who really pushed me. So there was a guy at City, uh, my boss at the time, a guy called Deepak Rastogi, and Deepak ran global derivatives for City, and he just backed me and gave me a chance. Michael Hawker, who you probably know, Mike Hawker, <laughs> he was my boss when I was a young man in New Zealand, and um, Phil Coffey was my boss at one point when I was in New Zealand. <laughs> and they just sort of backed me and gave me that opportunity. And when I said I'd like to go to London, they were like, yeah, we'll send you and you can go and get me a job. And so I, I think being a, you know, those people were great because they had this fundamental, I remember Mike used to say to me, you know, and Deepak, just, just hire smart people, hire people that are smarter than you and don't be, don't be scared to pay them more than you earn and all of that other stuff, you know? And, and so they, and they had this fundamental belief as well at the time that, um, you know, banking is relatively simple, actually it's not rocket science, you know, you know, smart people can figure it out. And so you just sort of, Get the best people that you can with the right values, right intellect, and and give them opportunity. And you know that's that's sort of been my philosophy ever since. Yeah, that, that that's that's great. I mean, yeah, some of the best opportunities I've had is when people have just backed me to do to do something that I was really interested in in, in doing as well. Um, now, just to finish off um, the the interview, um, we're going to have a little quiz here. Um, but you can only answer one of these things. And so just whatever whatever answer comes first into your head, I'll just ask four questions here. So as a borrower, are you more inclined towards fixed or variable rates? Fixed. Grassroots, sport, or the Australian Open tennis? Well, as a sponsor of the Australian Open, I have to go with the Australian Open. <laughs> <laughs> and another one where you're the sponsor of the Archibald Prize, Peter Wagner's portrait of Guy Warren at 100 or Ben Quilty's portrait of Margaret Ollie? I actually like the Margaret Ollie. I had a look like, um, yeah, undoubtedly I thought that was really quite special actually, yeah. And last question, a good book or a good movie? A uh, book. Excellent. Well, thank thank you, Shane, so much. We really appreciate your time and for all of the insights that you've given here today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. 
Yeah, no, thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Shane. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.